You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. There are a few things, there are a few things as scandalous as corrupt religion. Abusive priests, prosperity preachers, narcissistic pastors. All of these are so shocking because they're the complete opposite of everything that these people are meant to be. Just think about it, right? Religious leaders are meant to be servants who lovingly, sacrificially care for our souls. And so suddenly when we hear of a priest who abuses a child, a preacher who defrauds the poor, a pastor who bullies the weak. It is right, it is right that we feel horror. And you can only wonder, if a church could be that potentially corrupted, why in the world would anyone ever want to be a Christian? In fact, uh, McCrindle Research a few years ago surveyed a group of Australian non-Christians and they asked them this question. When you think about Christians and Christianity... To what extent do the following factors negatively influence your perceptions? I wonder what, how you might answer that. Right up the top, three in four respondents said, that's right, church abuse. From priests abusing children to church leaders involved in scandals. And, and let's face it, even for as Christians, we look with horror don't we, at the hypocrisy of some leaders and ask ourselves, what in the world is God doing? What in the world is God doing? Well, friends, today we meet corrupt religion at its absolute worst. We meet the sons of Eli, the two priests, Hophni and Phinehas. And can I say, whatever sin you may have witnessed in the church, what we find here is as bad as it gets. And yet, and yet, as deep as their sins may be, God is still at work. You see, this passage will show us the depth of their corruption, the extent of their depravity, and yet despite their sin, we will see that God is bringing down corrupt religion and he is raising up a perfect priest. So why don't we look at this story together? Why don't we see just how corrupt these two priests really are? Across three parts, this story exposes Hophni and Phinehas as sinful, condemned, and disgraced. And in each section, we'll also glimpse a raft of hope as well. Let's see. Well, that phrase, sinful priest, sinful priest, it should sound like a a contradiction in terms, shouldn't it? But for some of us, it's not all that shocking. I mean, let's face it, we've been around the block, we've seen enough religious leaders commit enough public sins that by now, just not that surprised. In the Old Testament, Hophni and Phinehas, can I say, they are as sinful as they come. In verse 12, they are described as wicked men, literally sons of wickedness. It's ironic. By birth, they are sons of Eli, but in spirit, they are sons of evil. And worse still, 
Again, ironically, they do not respect, literally, they do not know the Lord. I mean, there's a joke if there ever was one, right? A priest whose job is to represent God does not himself actually respect, let alone even know that God. But here are Hophni and Phinehas, disrespecting God and exploiting his people. Just, just look with me at what they do. So, so every year, Israelites, just like Elkanah and Hannah, they bring their sacrifices to Shiloh. And it is the priests who offers those sacrifices on behalf of the people. It is the priest who intercedes for them and prays for their forgiveness. But instead of serving God's people, Eli's sons are stealing from God's people. So this is what happens, right? As, as people offer their meat sacrifices, the, the priest's servants come along. He, he plunges a fork into the pot containing the sacrificial meat. And then whatever meat is lifted up, the servant then seizes from the people and gives to the priest. And the priest claims that meat, not for God, but look at the detail in verse 14. He claims it for himself. Bit of a strange question, but when you go to eat Korean barbecue, what's the best part of the meat? People often tell me, Adam, it's the collagen, which really just means the fat, doesn't it? Well, in the Old Testament, actually the fat was also the best part of the sacrifice. And in Leviticus 3, a priest is required to set aside that fat portion all for the Lord. That belongs to God. But look at what Hophni and Phinehas are doing in verses 15 and 16. They are claiming that fat portion. They are claiming God's portion all for themselves. You see, these two priests, who should be representing God to his people, are stealing from their people and stealing from their God. And the sin of Eli's sons, it, can I tell you, it plums new depths. When in verses 16 and 17, they threaten violence against the innocent. Just look at what they say. Hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. We might not be so familiar with religious leaders maybe making threats of physical violence against people. But unfortunately, it's not too hard to imagine other forms of control, is it? Uh, some of you will be familiar with the sexual abuse committed by the late Christian speaker, Ravi Zacharias. And one of the more disturbing aspects of his conduct was the force he exercised over his victims. He warned uh, one woman to never speak out against him or she would be, quote, responsible for millions of souls whose salvation would be lost. I mean, how wicked is that? To not only sexually abuse innocent women, but to then control them, maybe not physically, but psychologically and spiritually. Friends, it's no wonder that in verse 17 we read this judgment passed on Hophni and Phinehas. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. I find it absolutely remarkable that the Bible would present such a brutally honest picture of God's people and their leaders. It doesn't hide it. It doesn't sanitize it, it doesn't cover anything up. No, it exposes the sin for all of us to see. In fact, just think about it, right? If you were going to make up Christianity to control the masses and consolidate power in the church, you really wouldn't include this sort of institutional corruption, 
No, the Bible is almost a bit too honest about our sins, isn't it? Of even the most seemingly religious, as if to warn us, don't place your trust in humans. Don't place your trust in humans. Well, friends, with such a corrupt priesthood, can I say, Israel faces a very real problem. Just think about it, the priests, they're appointed to intercede for God's people, to plead with God for their forgiveness. But if the priesthood is corrupt, then who can intercede for them? Who can intercede for them? Who will plead for God's forgiveness when the priests themselves are so radically sinful? A crisis in religion leads to a crisis for the nation. And yet, and yet I wonder if you noticed, in a sea of sin, we spot a raft of hope. Hope found in an unlikely boy, Samuel. You see, just like Hophni and Phinehas, Samuel wears a linen ephod, marking him out as a priest of Israel. But where Eli's son sinned in the Lord's presence, verse 18 says that Samuel served in the Lord's presence. You see, Samuel is the priest that they are not, and yet, he's only a boy. Gosh, his mother still knits him a robe every year. He's a young boy from the wrong tribe, and yet through this young child, God is at work. God is at work. In verses 20 and 21, he blesses Samuel's father, cares for his mother, provides children for his family, and most of all, notice this, he raises Samuel in the presence of the Lord. You see, Israel, on the outside, looks in a total state of spiritual disrepair, led by two radically sinful priests. But quietly, God is at work. He has not abandoned his people. You see, in this young boy, God is raising up another priest. Well, we fast forward some years, and in verse 22, Eli is old. And if Eli's son is setting, then it's Eli's sons who will rise in his place. And we know, gosh, if these guys take over the mantle of Eli, Israel's future is looking pretty bad. It's looking just as bankrupt as their morals. And if we thought the sin of Hophni and Phinehas in our first section was bad, it gets even worse. Eli hears public reports about everything his sons are doing to all Israel. Again, notice and look carefully, not what they are doing for all Israel, not even what they are doing in all Israel, but what they are doing to all Israel. You see, friends, Israel is a victim of the sins of his sons. And he hears that they are committing the grossest sins imaginable. They are sleeping with the women who serve at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Some people want to say these are Canaanite cult prostitutes, somehow complicit in this, but that's not what's going on here. No, friends, be in no doubt, this is sexual abuse and exploitation at its absolute worst. In verse 23, Eli summons his sons and he asks them, why are you doing these things? And yet, tragically, they would not listen to their father. Friends, you see, their sins, they are public, they are flagrant, and they are unrepentant. 
And then surely, right, surely, whether or not he realizes it, Eli asks his sons, and I suspect he's asking us, the most penetrating question of all. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Can you hear what he's saying? If your sin is only horizontal, simply against another human, as bad as it is, no, God can intercede for you. He he has given a priest to plead your case. But if your sin is vertical, if it is against God himself, my dear friend, then you have no one to intercede for you. No one to plead for your forgiveness. No one to save you from the judgment. And surely therein lies our great problem. For all our sin is vertical. All our sin is against the Lord. In Psalm 51, King David is praying the prayer of repentance for, for committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. And yet look at what he says as he prays to God against you. You alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So Eli's question comes back to us. If all our sin is against the Lord, who can intercede for us? Who can plead for our forgiveness? Who can stand to save us from the judgment? Who can be our priest? You see, friends, you need a priest. And I need a priest. But no man or woman, however religious, however moral, however good, let alone Hoppy and Phinehas, will ever do. Because our sin is not primarily against man, our sin is primarily against the Lord. Hannah sung, right, last week or two weeks ago, that everyone who lives apart from God will one day be judged. She sung that God will weigh our actions. And if we are found to have lived for ourselves... If we are found to have lived by our own strength, then God the judge will condemn us. Now, I don't know about you, but that's bad news for me. I am hardwired to live for myself. I am almost programmed to live by my own strength. I need a priest. I need someone to intercede for me. I need someone to plead for my forgiveness. And if you're not a Christian, let me gently ask, when you stand before God the judge, or maybe you might not believe that, but here's a thought experiment. Imagine if, just imagine if it were true, that on the last day you stand before God the judge to account for your life, let me ask, who will intercede for you? Who will stand before God in your place? Who will plead for your forgiveness? Friends, Eli warns us, if we sin against the Lord, if we live without Him as our King, there is no priest to intercede for us. There is no priest to save us. And so God condemns Eli's sons. But yet again, yet again, Israel faces the exact same problem, don't they, right? I mean, if God deprives His people of a priesthood, then Same question still stands. Who can intercede for them? Who will be the priest that they need to plead their case? 
But just as in the first section, yet again, in a sea of sin, we spot a raft of hope. It's right there in verse 26. The boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and his people. Do you see, friends, Hophni and Phinehas, they are priests condemned by God, but Samuel, he is growing up into a priest commended by God. Well, we come now to our final scene. A a man of God, whoever he is, comes to Eli. Now, as I said, we don't know who he is, but he reminds Eli of everything that the Lord has done for his family. Three things in particular. In Exodus 4, the Lord revealed himself to Eli's forefather, Aaron. In Exodus 28, he chose their family to serve as priests to offer sacrifices and to intercede for Israel. He gave them that high honor. And then in Leviticus 7, he gave their family a share in all the Israelite food offerings. Wait, just stop and think about that third one for a moment. He gave their family a share in all the Israelite food offerings? So, so, not just stop for a moment and realize how significant this is. Not only did God save them out of Egypt... Not only did he give them the high honor of serving as priests, no, he even gave them a portion of his sacrifices to graciously provide for their every need. God had given Eli and his sons everything, but in their greed, they did not trust the provision of God. Or in the words of Hannah's song, they sought to prevail by their own strength. Just imagine for a moment a parent who gives their eldest son an allowance to care for his little sisters and to provide for himself. But, but instead of receiving that allowance with thanks and caring for the little sisters entrusted to him, what does he do? He steals from his parents and he even steals from the little sisters for whom he swore to care. That's something of what Eli and his sons are doing to God and his people. Instead of responding to God's grace with humility and gratitude, they they despise God's sacrifices, reject his provision, and spurn his grace. The indictment's right there in verse 29. Look at it with me. You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Gosh, did you get that? You have honored your sons more than me. Now, there's a warning against idolizing our families if there ever was one. You see, in many cultures today, and in that culture as well, you, your sons, and your family, you're all the one same unit. So to honor your son more than God, to honor your family more than God, is to honor yourself more than God. And that's what Eli's doing here. In the words of Hannah's song, he and his sons are seeking to prevail by their own strength. They are opposing the Lord. They are lifting themselves up by tearing everyone else down. Religious leaders should model for us, shouldn't they? How best to respond to God's grace. Well, Eli and his sons model for us how exactly not to respond to God's grace. You see, friends, we who have received every spiritual blessing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus ought to respond in humility and thanks. 
We ought to live not for ourselves or our own honour, but for God and His glory. And we must beware Eli's sin. Do not honour your family more than the Lord. Do not honour yourself more than the Lord. Do not overlook the sins of your spouse or your children, lest they honour themselves more than the Lord. So, in verse 30, God declares judgment on the house of Eli. Those who honour me I will honour, but those who despise me will be disgraced. Can you see the contrast here, right, if you just rewind a fortnight ago? Hannah, she she epitomized a woman who honored the Lord and acknowledged his kingship. And what did God do? He lifted her up. But Eli and his sons, the priests of Israel, epitomize men who despise the Lord and reject his throne. And what does God do? He brings them down. We can almost hear Hannah singing, can't we? Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. So instead of giving them strength like he gave Hannah, no, God promises in verse 31 to cut off their strength, to cut off the strength of their forefather's family. In short, no one in Eli's family will live long enough to enjoy the blessings of Israel. And that's exactly what will happen. In chapter 4, Eli's sons will be killed in battle and he himself will die. In chapter 22, 85 of his descendants will be slaughtered and executed by King Saul. And the once proud priesthood of Eli will come to a tragic end. And in generations to come, Eli's line will finally be replaced by the line of Zadok, who will assume the priesthood of Israel. You see, friends, just as Hannah sung, God is the king who brings down the proud. And still, like the first two sections of this story, we face the same problem, don't we? If Eli's house is rejected, and rightfully so, Israel is without a priesthood. And if Israel is without a priesthood, who can intercede for them? Who will stand before God and plead for their forgiveness? And yet again, For the third time, in a sea of sin, we spot a raft of hope. In verse 35, God promises to raise up a faithful priest for myself. He he will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. You see, if God is the God who only brings down the proud, that is good news, but only by heart. But do you see, friends, God does not only bring down the proud, no, he lifts up the humble. Not only does he judge a corrupt priesthood, he will raise up a faithful priest. And praise God, praise God, this this faithful priest will do everything that Eli, Hophni and Phinehas have failed to do. He will not exploit us. He will not harm us. And he will not hurt us. No, instead, he will intercede for us. He will stand before God for us. He will plead with God for our forgiveness. A perfect priest, raised up by God, 
will reconcile us with the Lord forever. Do you see, friends, in a book that is all about God's king, yes, God's anointed king will perfectly rule his people. And God's faithful priest will perfectly intercede for them. It's as if this passage just echoes with the lyrics of Hannah's song that God will humble the proud and exalt the humble. God will bring down corrupt religion and raise up a perfect priest. Well, friends, we've seen the story. What does it mean for us today? Firstly, God has not abandoned his church. God has not abandoned his church. When you look around our world and our nation, it can be easy at times, can't it? To think that God has somehow abandoned his church. Even if you think about the issue of our day, just think about it, right? Apart from a few welcome weeks, we haven't been able to physically gather as a church in any continuous way for coming on two years. If church means gathering, then we have not church for far too long. And now, yes, we can, we can finally see a roadmap to regathering, but now many churches are being divided by the question of vaccine passports. So we've had two years of separation, and now an upcoming period of division, and you've got to wonder, what are you doing, God? Have you abandoned your church? Though for some of you, the events of this passage may be too close for comfort. Indeed, you may have witnessed or even experienced the sin of religious leaders that has shaken your confidence in God. You've seen narcissistic pastors use and abuse the weak. And worse still, you've seen your own friends who you love so dearly walk away from the Lord because of it. And you just can't get past it, right? You, you see the injustice in the house of God. You see your friend forsake his saviour and you wonder to yourself, what is God doing? Why doesn't he stop this? Has he abandoned his church? Friends, the events of 1 Samuel 2 show us that however deep the sin of God's people, God's sovereignty is greater still. I wonder if you've noticed, right, that across the three sections of this passage, here's an engineer's way to reading the Bible, 29 out of 36 verses are devoted to the sins of Eli's sons. That's a lot. And yet, in each of those three sections, they end with this small raft of hope. They account for just seven of those 36 verses. But can I tell you, those seven verses, they guarantee that God has not forsaken his people. They guarantee that God has not abandoned his church. You see, those seven verses speak of God in amongst a sea of sin, raising up a faithful priest, a priest who will intercede for his people. Sin will not have the last word. Sometimes we look at the church and the world and all we see are 29 verses of sin, and yet we miss the seven verses of hope. But in Matthew 16, the Lord Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Nothing and no one are beyond the sovereign grace of our God. However sinful you may think the church, God has not forsaken her 
He has not abandoned her. He has not given up on her. And neither should we. Secondly, God will judge the sins of his church. God will judge the sins of his church. We don't much like speaking of judgment, do we? But, but the truth is, all of us in our heart of hearts, we want justice. But when we hear of a priest who is convicted for sexually abusing a child, we want him to be judged. We want the courts, the law, and God himself to condemn that abusive priest to bring justice for that abused child. And then, when we see, if we see the guilty walk free, justice not served, the innocent not vindicated, we wonder, God, what are you doing? Some of us may have witnessed or experienced sin in the church that has gone unpunished or unresolved. Institutions, systems, denominations, families, cultures that work to protect the perpetrators of such great injustice. And you might wonder, God, what are you doing? Why won't you judge the wicked? Forget not Hannah's song. For not only will he raise up the lowly, he will bring down the proud. God will judge the sins of his church. Hannah sung of that promise that God would destroy the wicked, shatter the strong, and judge the ends of the earth. And God, as the sovereign king, will bring down the proud. And just as judgment began with the house of Eli, the Apostle Peter reminds us that one day judgment will begin with the household of God. God has not abandoned his people. He will judge the sins of his church. And in our heart of hearts, can I say, we know, friends, that that is good news for the oppressed. That is good news for the victim. That is good news for our world. For it guarantees that one day every wrong will be set right. Finally, God has raised up a priest for his church. The, the question, right, that echoes and echoes over and over again throughout this passage is who can intercede for us who can represent us before God and plead for our forgiveness or when we read the final verses of this, of this passage who is that faithful priest it's the big golden question that so many of you are asking is it Samuel is it Zadok is it Jesus and I want to say yes there's no doubt that this passage most immediately points to Samuel as the faithful priest whom God provides. You can see that in the structure of the passage as Samuel being raised in the house of the Lord is drip-fed and climaxes towards the end of this passage. And then when we forecast further into the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 2, this prophecy over Eli's household is fulfilled when Zadok and his line assume the priesthood and take over. But as faithful as Samuel and Zadok might be, our problem still remains. If our sin is against the Lord, who can intercede for us? Hebrews 7 tells us exactly the kind of priest that we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You see, friends, we need a priest so unlike Eli and his sons 
We need a priest who's better than Samuel, better than Zadok, a priest so unlike us. We need a priest who is sinless, a priest who is worthy enough to intercede for us, deserving enough to stand before God and plead for our forgiveness. And that's why God has raised up Jesus, the perfect God-man, to be that faithful priest. Chris, do you realize what that means? Do you realize what that means for our lives? It means that whatever sin you carry, whatever shame you bear, whatever guilt with which you may be burdened, Jesus can and will intercede for you. He can give you the forgiveness that no one else can give. We read this passage and balk at the sin of Hophni and Phinehas. Can I say, friends, your sin could be as deep and dark as that of Eli's sons. But you have what they didn't. You have Jesus. And if you turn to him, if you turn from your sin and cast your hope upon him, just like Hannah did two chapters or two weeks ago, can I promise you, he can be your priest. He can secure your forgiveness. He can guarantee your salvation. He can give you the new life that no one else can give. You might think that this is just a message for the non-Christian. Can I say it's not? It's a message for us believers who have walked with the Lord even for many years that we continue to be weighed down and burdened by sins we think cannot be forgiven. And we think and then look to people to somehow be our intercessors, to be those who will save us. No, there is no intercessor but Christ. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, whoever lives and prays for me, whoever lives and intercedes for me. Brothers and sisters, for your forgiveness, for your salvation, for your soul, trust no mere man, trust no human priest, trust only the Lord Jesus, for he alone can intercede for us. Let me pray. You are a holy God. And we know that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We are such an unholy people. Unable to intercede for one another. Unable to intercede for ourselves. God, when we look at the sin of Hophni and Phinehas, our eyes are turned inwards as we reflect on the sin of our own hearts. And then our eyes, God, are turned upwards as we look and see him there, the one who paid for all our sin. May we turn to the Lord Jesus. May we trust in the Lord Jesus. And know that however deep our sin, nothing and no one can escape the sovereign grace of our God. 
And we pray these things for his sake. Amen.